to uh, welcome and introduce Susan Shannon. And I met her uh, in our recent years at uh, San Quentin. My, my impression, you've been there about four years? No, it's going on eight now. Eight years. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't meet you in the first few years. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so she's a uh, Tibetan Buddhist practitioner who uh, did her chaplaincy training, your CPE, at San Quentin. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is kind of unusual to do it in that way. And she'll talk a little bit about her unusual way of doing CPE. And uh, she did it under the guidance of this fantastic, the fantastic uh, Catholic priest, yes. George Williams. George Williams. And um, some of you, when you get to go to San Quentin, you'll probably be spending some time in the chapel. And if you're uh, lucky, maybe he'll be there in the little office. And Susan, uh, some years ago, uh, hooked up with Jacques Verdun and, uh, and is very closely connected to his program, especially with the GRIP program. Mm-hmm. And she's a GRIP facilitator, and, uh, which is one of the, my favorite things to support. So that's what I know about you. I <laughs> wish I knew more, but you'll, you'll, that's the way it goes. And I'm very, very happy you're here. And every time I see you, it's wonderful. And what you've offered our programs in the past is great when we come up there. And mm. So this is the first time Susan's come down here. We usually meet her up there and in a different environment. So thank you for coming. Thank you very much. I love coming here, actually. This is the second time I've sat in this room and spoke. Oh, for us? Yes. <laughs> but uh, I love coming down here. There's something about Redwood City that as soon as I come down off of the hill, it feels like a whole different state. It's really nice. <laughs> So, yes, as Gil said, I've been at San Quentin for eight years. Um, My path to chaplaincy has been not exactly direct. I started in 1998 looking into chaplaincy, thinking it was a good place for my skill set and for my heart and my mind and my spiritual practice. And at the time, I was looking into healthcare chaplaincy, and when I heard how much I would be on call, I decided that it was not the right time for me because I had a young daughter, and I was a single mom. So I put it on hold and had a number of um, life-changing crises in the ensuing 15 years or so. And in 2008, I decided to revisit chaplaincy. And I was at a crossroads of either going back to school to become a a licensed psychologist or a chaplain. And I made an intentional meditation around that decision and did a bunch of preparations before I sat on my Zafu. And just as I was about to touch my but to the Zafu, the phone rang, and a friend said, my husband just died, will you come to the hospital? And that was it. That was the answer to my, to my um, request. I didn't even need to do any more of that meditation. I just jumped, jumped and went to the hospital. Um, I did my chaplaincy studies at the Chaplaincy Institute in Berkeley. I was aware of this program. However, I had been a student of... Buddhism since I was about 14, 14, 15, and I decided that I really needed to work up some interfaith 
understanding because I had developed such an aversion to my Christian background that I knew that I could not actually manifest the bodhisattva vow if I continued to, one, have an aversion to Christianity and two, not be able to recognize the the one taste in all the different faith traditions. So coinciding with my time at the Chaplaincy Institute, I enrolled at Star King for a Master's in Divinity. And it was in the last year of my MDiv program that I needed a um, Friday morning class. And the only one was a prison ministry class. I'd always thought I'd end up in prison um, one way or the other, but um, serving. And that class was taught by Father George Williams, Jesuit priest, who had just started his dream job at San Quentin as the Catholic chaplain there. He'd been a Catholic, he'd been a chaplain in the East Coast for about 18 years. And so he brought us into San Quentin where our first landing, our meaning, our class was in the um, weekly restorative justice program. And I had been working in restorative justice and emotional literacy with middle school kids for... um, at the time, close to 15 years, love restorative justice, see it as a spiritual practice. But most of all, I found that I had a lot of, uh, felt like spiritual traction there in San Quentin. I saw more transformation in San Quentin State Prison within the inmates than I ever saw in the monasteries that I worked with. And I worked with two monasteries, one in Nepal and one in India, quite closely for about 20 years. And um, very involved with the monastic culture there in the Nechong and the Tukje Choling Monastery. And as some of you might know, the monasteries are uh, bustling with um, business. They're very, very uh, organized and got to get things done and many of the monks are so busy they don't have the time that the inmates do to just stop and to really go inward so I asked Father George after this uh, semester ended if I could do field work there and he said yes and that's when I took the victim offender education training with Insight Prison Project which Jacques Verdun started as well, I called Jacques up because he lives in the same neighborhood as me, and I knew him. And I said, hey, Jacques, can I do anything? And he said, well, do you know anything about restorative justice and emotional literacy? I said, yes, actually. I've been working in those fields for a number of years, and he invited me to help him um, create and edit his new curriculum for the GRIP program. And that's what got me into GRIP. Um, I've been facilitating the GRIP program now for going on eight years and also co-leading the mindful meditation class that Jacques uh, started before I began coming into the prison. Um, I should say my own practice is based in the Tibetan tradition and has been for uh, well over 40 years. So um, my work with one of those monasteries, the Nechung Monastery, was to help start a Rime or non-sectarian center here in the Bay Area for the Tibetan community. And I absolutely love the idea of Rime, meaning non-sectarian, no walls, because it's the interfaith version 
of interfaith. It's the Buddhist interfaith version. It's, it's we all are agreeing on what we agree on. Um, and the things that we don't agree on, we're going to just kind of leave them over here for a little while and work on cultivating a warm heart and understanding. And that's my approach to teaching Buddhism in the prison. Um, a few years after I started at San Quentin, I also was able to go over into death row because Father Williams knew of one inmate there who had a Tibetan Buddhist practice who was not getting his spiritual needs served, and that was Jarvis Masters, who's written a few books. So Jarvis and I connected um, quite deeply and began a one-on-one meeting every week for two or three years where we sat in a small room that in, in death row that had it's very strange pictures of puppies and the lyrics to imagine on the wall, if you can imagine. And we talked Dharma, and we knew that the blessing of our shared Lama, Shabda Jukul Rinpoche, was going to eventually expand to where our death row meeting would not be just us. So we were quite aware that for this to be really based in Dharma, it had to benefit many people. And at this point today, I have 65 guys on my death row Buddhist list, and we meet weekly to discuss the Dharma. We've done a number of things. So I put that out there just in case anybody's interested in knowing more about that. Um, So enough about me. I'd like to know a little bit about you guys. What we have in store today is a PowerPoint that I put together on the spiritual needs of inmates that Gil thought might be interesting for you. And um, that's up up and coming, but I'd like to know, uh, maybe we could do a go-around, your name, um, if you have any burning questions about prison chaplaincy, and where you're currently serving, if you are. So maybe just those three things, and if you don't mind, I'm going to kind of jot out your name so I can be a little bit more personal. So, do you like to start? Yes. I'm Joanna, and I volunteer at the Elmwood Jail in Milpitas. <coughs> Thank you. I'm Stephanie, and I work in palliative care, and I have questions, but I'm open to what you're Okay, thank you. Do you like to go? My name is Adam. We have a lot of parallels right now. Um, You and I will talk about later. But I'm interested in hospice chaplaincy, and I'll start volunteering there soon. No questions right now. Okay. I'm Joanne, and uh, I'm currently supporting a patient in a boarding care home. Um, it's not end of life. It's uh, spiritual support. She had a stroke. And I um, uh, have volunteered at San Quentin myself in a couple of programs, but haven't done that in about six years. Mm-hmm. Well, my name is Dal, and I volunteer at uh, Elmwood Correctional Center. I go in once a week, and uh, with Joanna, we do a meditation mm-hmm. and just... Uh, Last yesterday, I started doing one-on-one with the guys. Great. My name's Nadine, 
and I volunteer at Desert Regional Medical Center in Palm Springs. And I'm unfamiliar with the term restorative justice, so if you could explain that, that okay. would be great. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. My name is Phil. I'm volunteering at uh, the Correctional Training Facility in Soledad and uh, Stanford Hospital. Nice. My name is Amy, and I'm interested in hospice and hospital chaplaincy. Okay. My name is Carolee, and I am working at Kaiser in Richmond and then training for um, hospice as well and worked in San Quentin in a project a long time ago with Center Force. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm David, and I, I serve downtown San Jose, Joe. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, Chuck, and I serve uh, at a hospice in, uh, in uh, Joshua Tree. Mm-hmm. I'm Alan. Um, I'm also interested in hospice, but currently working uh, or servicing at the Portland VA as I'm going for my master's uh-huh. at Starking. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm Susan, and I volunteer at a hospital in Sacramento. I'm Bob, and I volunteer with Zen Hospice Project at Laguna Honda, mm-hmm. and then also at Kaiser Marin mm-hmm. in spiritual care. Nice. I'm, I'm Beth, and uh, my chaplaincy work is volunteer at Laguna Honda. And my question would be some of your own story and also your advice for other people about how you hold your own response to the injustices Mm. that you see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, My name is Juliana, and I volunteer at Dual Vocational Institute, um, which is a prison in Tracy, and my, um, I have a lot of questions for you, but I guess my most burning question is how do you deal with a group dynamic or a group conversation when some of the, I guess, alpha personalities want to make the Dharma about a Christian God? So they, like, how do you bring the conversation back to Dharma and away from Christianity? Okay. Um, let me just... Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. My name is Cater, and my um, chaplaincy is my private practice as a craniosacral practitioner, which is um, from infants and newborns and their moms up to death and dying mm-hmm. and everywhere in between. And I spent uh, about five years at Zen Hospice before that. Thank you. My name is Dylan, and I volunteer at the Women's Jail in San Francisco. I will also be starting a volunteer position at Maitree Hospice in San Francisco as well. Great. Okay. Um, Gil and Paul, do you guys have any uh, burning questions? No. Okay. All right. Well, a lot of people involved with hospice. Uh, Father George and I were talking one day about how much we love working in the prison because we get to actually work with guys who are going from death to life. And that's an interesting kind of way of framing it, but that's what we see there. That's what is so profound. I think before starting the PowerPoint, I want to ask 
How many people in here currently know someone personally who's incarcerated? Incarcerated? Who's incarcerated? Okay, yeah. And how many people in here have ever done anything in your life that you could be incarcerated for but you didn't get caught? (laughs) I love that question. Yeah. Well, as you know, America has the highest number of incarcerated people. It's just tragic. It speaks a little bit to the injustice question. It's just tragic. Um, So I've been in San Quentin by choice. I haven't gone too far afield. And San Quentin is an unusual prison in that it's situated very closely into the Bay Area as opposed to way out in the middle of nowhere. And the Bay Area is quite a liberal area, so we have a lot of people, a lot of people with kindness in their hearts who have the time to come across the bridge or step right over to San Quentin and do volunteering. And for that reason, San Quentin has become uh, known as a programming prison, kind of San Quentin University. So I'm well aware that... Other prisons do not have what we have. Other prisons do not have the culture of transformation as obvious as we have it. And um, they definitely don't have the programs that we have. We have something like 150 programs, almost 5,000 inmates, and close to that many volunteers. So, yeah, it's it's a very unique place. Um, This PowerPoint is going to present some ideas, information, suggestions, and facts that would be great if they were implemented in other prisons, but they're not. And it might be a while before not just the CDCR, but communities in general can lessen the othering going on. There's so much othering, so much fear. So um, I'm aware that for those of you who go into other prisons, some of these things are going to be uh, dreams in the sky. One of the main attractions to me of working in the prison is exactly the transformation that I see. And as a Buddhist for such a long time, Transformation is what I've gotten out of my path. A lot of inner transformation, most definitely looking back and seeing the limitations of my thinking and the filters that have been dropped and very humbly seeing the ones that I'm still working on. So it's engaging work. It's very engaging work. Um, We have such a number of volunteers coming in that one of the topics that comes up for Jacques and I often is how uh, infatuating it is to actually witness this transformation, to actually see and hear these guys being so incredibly articulate with the stages that they've gone through in their hearts, minds, and souls, many of them without much more than a third grade education. So I always tell the guys when we interview for GRIP, this is not an academic class. You guys already have a PhD in you. It's all here. You have all the language you need right here. 
we're going to help you find the way back to your hearts if you haven't found it already. And that, to me, is proven by this incredible ability to express the changing inner landscapes that they go through and to express the causes and the conditions that they have, uh, many were born into, lived with, took on as a belief system, and then went on to recognize that that belief system was as limited as the zip code that they never got out of, most of them. So to break through that kind of limitation is something we can all strive for, but most of us free people, people out in the world, just we like to think about it, we like to read books about it, but it's too hard. <laughs> you know, spiritual practice is not a ticket to an easy life. You engage in spiritual practice and watch out. The bricks are going to start to fall and you're going to end up finding a whole other foundation that needs to be, be built. So there is a bit of an infatuation that goes on with a lot of the volunteers that come in. Um, and the prison is also full of people who have lived their lives under a form of manipulation, manipulation from above, from authority, but there's also a prison currency, the currency that can easily be looked at as kind of like bakshish, kind of like when you're traveling in a third world country and, you know, you want to do this and this person wants to do this, but for whatever reason, you need to grease the palms. So... This is a currency. I like to see it as a currency versus a manipulation, but it is also an easy manipulation for outside people to come in and see through those rose-colored glasses and not really recognize that you're in prison. And that happens a lot at San Quentin. So we need to to very uh, deeply um, watch and, and train our volunteers so that they stay safe. Gil reminded me, little while ago about one meeting when uh, I was present after a group of Sati students came to the prison and we usually take them over to the uh, cafeteria to download a little bit and somebody asked me do I trust the inmates and I said no and um, and I don't remember what else I said but usually when I'm asked about that I, I say no this is a really interesting place where you keep your heart as open as you can you have your protection around you and you 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 trust in the moment you trust in how they're showing up you trust in whatever intention is being put forward but you cannot blindly trust and I think that that might be true really in the big world as well you know we like to think of ourselves as trusting people and in fact most of us are but all it takes is the wrong gut feeling or the wrong gesture or the wrong this or the wrong that, and pretty soon, you know, your gut mind begins to have a different conversation than your mind mind, and things can go sideways. So um, I will say I trust the men. uh, I trust the men a great deal with them showing up. I trust that they're showing up. I trust that seeds are being planted. Do I trust 100% beyond that? Not really. I trust myself. I trust my love. 
I trust my heart. I trust my ability to embrace whatever it is that they're bringing to me. I trust in the potential of our encounters. And beyond that, it's it's up to the forces at work. So um, I think I'll start the PowerPoint, unless anybody has any questions or comments about anything that's been said so far. No? Okay. I would love it if you did have a question to just jot it down, though, and then we can, we'll cover this. So I'm not going to spend as much time as sometimes I do on this. Um, whoops. And I trust that you all are reading. Um, for me, being in the prison, being able to do this work is about opening hearts. It's about not really me showing up to do that, but me showing up with an open heart. And what I've experienced is an open heart is all that it takes. An open heart and a, and a non-judgmental presence. And people open themselves. They resonate. This image is from a book that a group of inmates did on my, uh, during my first Houses of Healing class, which is a really great program. And this poem is a wonderful poem by a spoken word artist who is also one of our senior grip uh, facilitators, Fatine Jackson. Oh, sorry. So I will read this. Somebody tell me if you feel me, the misery that dwells deep inside. Somebody tell me if you feel me. The stress and strain, the relentless pain that's hard to hide. Somebody tell me if you feel me. The self-limitation and the self-doubt. Somebody tell me if you feel me. The compassion, love, and affection that's hard to live without. Somebody tell me if you feel me. The self-pity, the depression, the hopelessness. Somebody tell me if you feel me the frustration, the anger, the sadness, the loneliness. Somebody tell me if you feel me, the wish and the longing for joy and happiness. Somebody tell me if you feel me, the vision of being healthy and wealthy, escaping conditions that impoverish. Somebody tell me if you feel me, the turnaround from sadness to gladness, from nothing to something that's in your range. Please tell me if you feel me, that you and only you have the ultimate power to make that change. I like this as the beginning of the, of the presentation because every time I read that line, somebody tell me if you feel me, I see, I see a, a, a lifeline being thrown out of the deepest darkness, a lifeline being thrown out from the darkness of the soul, the darkness of not knowing anything other than a very very small, small area of earth where everybody is at war all the time, where nobody cares, where having somebody watch your back is mistaken as being friendship and knowing that you will quite likely 
be dead within a few years, just like all your homies, all your brothers. And this man, Fatin Jackson, when he came into my house as a healing group, he had not been in a group before, and he sat there holding all this energy. This was the first thing he ever wrote. Today, he is empowered. He just received a commutation from the governor. He came into this group with, I think, a... uh, something like a 64-to-life sentence, no hope of getting out, having a spirit so big. He came in and it was like Muhammad Ali or something walked in the room. He had such a spiritual presence. But he was so shy, he was so shut down, and slowly, slowly, over time, he found his voice. And now his whole life is rearranged. He's about to step out of the prison. He's going to be one of our main trainers. So my interfaith understanding or my interfaith education really helped me a lot. I think prior to that, when I was so solely immersed in Buddhism, I would hear certain words and they would really trigger me, like God, for example. I don't think I'd said the word God in 35 years. And I had this sort of belief system myself that... Ah, these people believing in God. I mean, isn't it like Santa Claus? I was, I was very limited. And yet here I'd been taking the Bodhisattva vow, you know, every time I'd go to teachings with the Dalai Lama or something. And it was that clash where I realized, what am I doing? You know, I'm not serving. I'm self-serving. I'm keeping myself as limited in my little zip code of, you know, my Tibetan friends or my Dharma books as, as the guys who were stuck in the streets. So to really embrace that oneness, however it is, there was a man in my house as a healing class who then went through grip, and he was so, uh, he was a boat without a tether. He was 25 years old, and he had no spiritual grounding whatsoever, but he was a very, you could feel it, just like with Fatin, you could feel he was a very um, mature and evolved spiritual being. And we asked him in group, so where's your God? Where's your church? I don't like church. I don't believe in God. Where do you feel oneness? Where do you feel oneness? The basketball court. Okay, that's your church. And he was like, really? And yeah, yeah, that's really. So he suddenly realized that he felt that oneness that other people feel in church with a tradition. And in a short period of time, he actually began going to church for the sangha, for the community, I think, mostly. And um, it's a beautiful thing. So recognizing oneness, regardless of the limitations of your mind. One of my favorite stories is a Jehovah's Witness who was so shut down and so full of fear that he walked in this Jehovah's Witness line that was very, very, very tight. And as he began recognizing oneness through group work, through recognizing that suffering is suffering, this is the beauty, beautiful interaction, intersection with dharma and prison work is the truth of suffering. Suffering is suffering. And then he began to find connection with other people and he began to, uh, his boundaries around his own faith tradition began to blur a little bit. And one day I saw him on the yard and he said, Susan, I don't know what's going on with me. I just feel so giddy. 
And I said, well, have you ever heard of Hafiz? And he says, no. And I said, well, he talks about being in love with God. And he said, that's it. That's exactly it. I feel in love with God. I feel in love with everybody. And to this day now, he also, all these guys I've mentioned are going to be getting out. Um, he started dancing. He started acting with Shakespeare. He started coming to our meditation group. Uh, it's just incredible to see what happens when you really can let somebody find their own version of oneness. I wish my dad would have found his church to be on the water versus the Roman Catholic institution, which he couldn't stand but felt so guilty about leaving. Um, but he didn't. And, um, and he died feeling like a bad Catholic. You know, I think the best thing we can do as chaplains is really read the field between you and whoever the person is that you're spiritually engaged with and really help to recognize where the little threads that can lead to their expression of oneness are and follow those threads, those golden threads. So, yes, you can see a lot of connection. Um, In my spiritual direction work, I feel like there's three main words, connection, disconnection, and interconnection. And the, uh, um, the truth of suffering, it can be interpreted in so many ways, right? Especially by people who have never had anybody that cared for them. It's isolating. Suffering is isolating. But when you really do learn and recognize and begin to communicate with people and see that everybody is suffering, that suffering exists... Then there's connection. It's like that that Sufi, there's a Sufi saying of when you're standing in the river looking this way, everything's going away from you. And when you turn around, everything's coming towards you. And that's that moment where people's lights go on, when they recognize that everything's actually coming towards them. They're actually connected. Even in that isolation, if they would have seen this way, there is connection. Um, healthy grieving practices are really important in our culture, but most definitely in the prison setting. There have been numerous studies, especially in Australia, linking recidivism and violence to unprocessed grief and loss. And we, in our GRIP program, after a few years of really pretty minimally addressing grief, began to bring it up into the beginning of our year because we recognized what a huge, huge obstacle it poses when people have not learned to grieve, when they've not been given permission to grieve in their own way. And so now we spend about two and a half, three months on grief and loss in the beginning of our program, and it's very grueling. It brings up a lot, especially for people who have perpetrated a lot of violence because it forces them to grieve their victims as well. Um, But most definitely, most of the grief and loss has to do with early, early life experiences. Being told things like probably many of us were told. It's just a dog. Or grandma's in a better place. Well, where? Yeah, it's just a dog, but I'm, it's my dog, and it's not here now. 
And if grandma's in a better place, can I go there? And boys don't cry. And all of this confusion that begins to create this energy within our body that tells us that our feelings don't matter and that grief hurts, even if we're not labeling it as grief and loss. So to really, really outline some clear, uh, open-ended grieving processes and rituals is hugely important in working in the inmate population. I'll talk more about restorative justice in a little bit. So I kind of got to this one already. I have a feeling that, and when I say that I don't mean I have a feeling like I have a feeling the room is warm, but I, in my experience, especially working with inmates, our culture has misrepresented forgiveness and made it be a have to versus a possible destination. And I think there are some studies done, I believe I've seen them, where the part of the brain that can actually feel the enlightened qualities like the paramitas that you guys are studying, um, compassion, tolerance, wisdom, all that, connection, happens only when there's a certain degree of uh, balance, peace, and safety in one's life. For most of the inmates who have been working off the amygdala firing for so long, the wiring isn't there. It's very uh, very capable of being wired up, and it is wired up quite quickly with the right um, classes, the right exercises, the right people, the right meditations. But it's really only after that happens that forgiveness can happen, that that feeling empathy. You have to be able to feel connection before you feel empathy. Without feeling connected, how are you going to feel empathy? I've had somebody say to me, "Um, I never even heard the word compassion until I got here. I've never even heard the word empathy. And over and over and over again, including death row inmates, I've heard people say, you know, I don't know what's come over me, but all of a sudden I'm tearing up at commercials. All of a sudden, you know, my cell will say, man, what's wrong? It's like, I don't know, but that little dog is so cute. <laughs> or um, with, with my death row inmates, over time many of them have reported to me that suddenly they realize that they don't want to flush a spider down the drain anymore. They're not swatting flies. They're keeping these little animals in their cells with great joy and recognizing there's been a shift inside. And I say that to equate to forgiveness because it's really fun to work with somebody for a number of years and see that they have absolutely no intent of forgiving. Forgiving, if you look at it from a Buddhist tradition, think about how not forgiving has such a close connection with the identity that we're holding. If I can hold this identity that I'm not going to forgive you, then I'm safe and you're over here. So one really needs to shift the way 
one holds and views themselves, their own identity, which comes from a lot of this kind of practice. Our GRIP program is based on a lot of cognitive behavior therapy, um, but Buddhist practice is a lot of cognitive behavior therapy in a lot of ways, techniques, you know, Buddhist training, Buddhist practice, mind training, lojong, all that. I love compost. I consider myself to be a good, good compost maker. And I bring that metaphor a lot into this prison work because we're not aiming at having people forget their past. We're aiming at being able to utilize, recognize, fully own, fully be accountable for our past. And to be able to use it as the fuel to transform and move into our future. If we were just going to be pushing things under the rug, that rug is going to be lifted at some point. Often, as you hospice workers probably know, at the end of life, people have uh, often bring forward issues of forgiveness, um, secrets, guilt, those kind of things at the end of life. We would rather be able to use as much of our past their past, our past, as we possibly can, to really move forward, to really recognize that owning all of oneself allows all of oneself to continue to move up that lotus stem, to transform. And the way we do that is, uh, has to be done with a lot of intention because there's a lot of responsibility in guiding someone through this kind of transformation through a program like GRIP but we also recognize that everybody has their own timing and no matter what books you read or what teachers you go to or what retreats you do or how much you spend here or there you're going to unfold to the degree that you unfold and that that is what we honor is the, the unfolding in general So one of our sayings in GRIP is hurt people hurt people. And when we begin to create bridges to understand, to really look at our parents, our grandparents, great-grandparents, and to look at our relationships with our kids, to really play our whole family dynamic out over a course of several lifetimes, you begin to recognize how those mirror neurons continue to be true. Intergenerational violence, it's a taught language. So um, it's a very important thing to look at. And many, many guys who come in find the beginning of compassion when they see through the eyes and the heart eyes And here, through the heart ears, they're developing how much their parents were hurting. Versus, my father was just a, you know, if I had one at all, I can't even call him my dad or my father. He was my my mom's sperm donor. And 
then when they recognize the kind of suffering that that man or that woman might have gone through, sometimes through very careful questioning, well, or careful listening. So my dad uh, was a mechanic all his life, but he never learned how to read or write. And he had a huge temper, and he would go off all the time on us if we asked him any questions. And then we begin to unpack that and begin to explore shame. And, well, do you think your father might have had some shame around that? And lights go on. Same thing with uh, veterans with PTSD, undiagnosed PTSD. Did, did you notice that your father changed when he came back from service? Oh, my God, he was a completely different person. And then learning a little bit about unpacking that, and then the heart begins to open. And then forgiveness can come for towards the parents, towards the mothers, the mothers who had no idea how to mother, the mothers who found themselves pregnant while they were addicted or or turning tricks or whatever, and this is how the youngster was raised, completely hating their parents, completely hating their mother. So often the, the path to forgiveness and compassion starts with understanding intergenerational um, dynamics. So this sustainable forgiveness is paid forward as well as backwards. That's what I was just speaking at. Some programs come in and work with the inmates and they really do present forgiveness as a destination that they have to get to. My experience is that forgiveness is one of the um, maybe final frontiers in inner freedom, inner peace. But that until somebody is ready to do that once again with that identity they're just not they're just not going to you know i've i've heard many times things like i'll never forget the per- forgive the person who murdered my brother well okay that's fine that's yours you can hold that and maybe two or three years down the line something shifts and that's a beautiful thing or i'll never f- i'll never forgive myself for murdering my wife all right, that's fine. You don't have to have that. You know, sit in that, have that, have that, and then all of a sudden, one day, it just it just happens, and they recognize their own goodness, and they recognize the heinousness of uh, once again, for always, forever, of the act. But that recognition of their core self is what allows for self-forgiveness, and what allows for moving forward and really and truly honoring their victims. I'm going to speed it up a little bit. Kind of talked about that. We spend a lot of time on the uh, male role belief system, female role belief system, which is really a good thing for all of us to spend our time in the the marriage not made in heaven. It usually has to do with our belief systems that we were conditioned into thinking they were ours at work with the, the uh, belief systems that our spouses have that they did not perhaps really ever have an opportunity to fully claim. So Father George proclaimed this 
quote in the beginning of a training at the prison and he, 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 it was really good. It really shook a lot of people up. You get a lot of evangelicals coming into the prison and that's their whole job is to bring God into the prison. That's their job. They're carrying God in their little wallet, whatever, and they're bringing God into the prison and Father George is like... If you think you're bringing God into the prison, go home. He's been here ever since, the, you know, he's here, he's here. So this fourth point here, for many feeling connected to others in a positive way, this, this is the guy on the basketball court. And the guy recognizing that the basketball court is where he feels oneness opens him up to feeling more connected with others, which then opens him up to actually be able to say and feel what others call God. And when that happens, miracles happen. When that happens, they are operating on a, by, with a whole different map. Karma changes. Everything shifts. This basketball court guy, he had a sentence of 104 to life. And he just got his, his sentence commuted. Imagine the hopelessness, being 19 years old with a 104-to-life sentence. You're never going to get out. And here, six years later, he's about to go out and do good things in the world. 12-step programs are great. Most prisons have 12-step programs. Even prisons that are far, far, far away in the cornfields have NA and AA. And... These programs are wonderful for so many reasons, as probably some of you know, not just to deal with the substance, but to deal with connection, to to become socialized, to be able to tell your secrets, to be able to be with others, to recognize the truth of suffering in this way. Most of these other points here, like educating about victim impact, um, programs that address, address anger. Now, there's a lot of anger management type programs in prisons these days. Um, programs that address the wounded inner child. Working with the wounded inner child is really key to transformation, to really um, expanding one's own view of self and reparenting oneself. And not too many programs that I'm aware of actually focus on this. So, I always like to bring it into the programs that I'm working with and give the guys a little bit of information about what it means to um, accompany your inner child, to meet your inner child now, today, and to reparent and to be able to walk with and have those dialogues with and journal with. And, And that also is a doorway to compassion. We have a really good college at the prison, it's award-winning, Patton College. And I wish that it was in uh, all prisons. I know that there's a big conference in, I think, uh, Wisconsin soon on education in the prisons. And Jody Lewin, who's the uh, uh, principal of Patton College, is going to go and speak. But, you know, the many, many people in prison fell through the education cracks and are extremely brilliant just given the opportunity, they find their great students, even at 50-plus years old, to see somebody being so turned on to learning and realizing they're good at it. 
that their teachers are paying attention to them and they're good at it. It's so exciting. There's people at San Quentin who have stepped out of prison into well over $100,000 jobs through the coding class and through the patent college and things like that. Okay, so here's restorative justice. And restorative justice is all about interconnection, all about recognizing how we're in this world together and that when one person is suffering, we're all suffering. Restorative justice means to understand the ripples that one causes when one acts out of balance and to really fully um, bear responsibility for everything that the perpetrator perhaps has done, but more importantly, for the communities around whoever the offender is, to look at themselves and ask, where did we fail this person? Where did we let this, how did we let this person become disconnected? How did we let this person fall from their true nature? And the communities come together and they support whoever it was that created the imbalance and the communities are healed. And restorative justice practices are alive and well in many communities, especially here in the Bay Area. I worked in restorative justice with middle school kids where when a kid is, um, receives his first misdemeanor he, and he does not want to go, he or she does not want to go through the court system, they come to the restorative justice program and they're called respondents at that point because they've already admitted guilt and they're heard by a jury of their peers most who have already gone through restorative justice, and the peers ask, the jury asks certain questions about the act that the kid is in there for and the kid's life. And they act, ask about the kid's life so they can find where they can bolster the life. If he or she does, just goes home after school, doesn't have anything to do, they'll find an after-school program for them. They'll find a place to volunteer Um, If they have a drug or alcohol problem, they'll support them with drug and alcohol counseling. And it's really quite remarkable. And I think the recidivism rate is um, maybe less than 10%. It's been going on now for uh, since 2001. And we have a huge restorative justice program at San Quentin, but every program at San Quentin is based in restorative justice. So this here, this is, I think, the final slide... Oh, second to the last. And this is what I feel is the most important in my work. And I believe in my work with chaplains, I also am a CPE supervisor, which I'll talk about a little bit. Um, you know, you think about self-care as something that you do when you get home. But I think it's really important that we front load our self-care, that we start it before we even get out of bed, that we recognize how porous we are just simply wanting to become a chaplain, just simply wanting to be with people in their suffering. We're porous, we're caring people. It's easy for us to absorb energy. It's easy for us to be so present with whoever it is that we're with that we're unaware of what we're actually taking home. And um, I heard from actually one one of your students, Gil, one time when I 
talked about this, he said, oh, maybe that's why every time I come home from the prison, I yell at the dog and my kids. And I said, well, you know, it could be. I mean, you know, it might be. But yes, I feel so, you know, hospitals are full of acute kind of traumas, accidents and sudden deaths and and people being very upset and all kinds of things. Um, cause even some people would, would say disembodied energies from people who are uh, in surgery and all of this. And in prisons, same. Prisons, although the guys show up with their best faces, uh, they show up and they're really ready to learn. It's a violent place. And they've witnessed so much violence. And they've been abused so badly, so many of them. And uh, the prison has existed for since 1858. There's hardly a cell there where somebody hasn't committed suicide, especially on death row. And so just walking in there, you're putting yourself in a lot of energy. And so it's important whether you think it's um, kind of woo-woo or new age or not, to cultivate some kind of protection around yourself. There's a chaplain I know who does street chaplaincy, and he said, that's why I wear the cross. He says, I'm not like hardcore Christian or anything, but this cross is my protection. I utilize this visualization every, every morning, and I remember it throughout the day. Um, you never know, as, as somebody working in a prison, and my capacity as the Buddhist chaplain there, what you're going to hear and when. And people are very crafty at being able to use two minutes of time as you walk f- from where you were to the bathroom with an extremely full bladder, hungry, low blood sugar, and they're going to tell you in those two minutes what they didn't disclose about their crime last week, and it's going to be horrendous. And you're like, oh, shit, you know? So every single minute, it's important to remember that we can shield ourselves without closing down our heart, without closing down our energetic. We can actually, we, we can and we need to be able to protect our ability to show up in our wholeness, in our groundedness. And so whatever kind of protection you feel would be useful for you, I invite you to be really creative with it. Draw it out maybe and bring it to your work and remember it many times a day. And you might have something just very simple like um, another one of mine is just feet on the ground, lower belly breath, and mantra. And if I can remember to let my lower belly out and breathe when somebody's disclosing something that could be disruptive, at least I know that my whole body is taking it in and um, being available to the healing that is happening in that moment. Because it's really true, I think, in my experience, that showing up with an open heart and a non-judgmental presence just automatically brings healing. You become, you're in the, in the bhav, you're in the, you're in the field of that wish-fulfilling gem, that, that tree, that tree that can fulfill all 
wishes, healing automatically arises. That which is wanting to be brought to visibility will automatically be brought to visibility. You don't need to work too hard, but you do need to work hard at keeping yourself from taking some of this home with you. So um, in conclusion, boundaries, really important. Recognizing white privilege, hugely important, no matter what privilege you might have. And uh, for those of you who do go into jails and prisons, it's really good to educate yourself a little bit more about prison culture. There's a lot of really good books and reports out there um, about working in prisons, about boundaries. There's one I just reviewed called Sitting Inside, which, did, did you see that? Oh, excellent book. Oh, very, very good book, because... Yes, um, well, he was also an inmate for a while. So he saw the incredible creative ways that inmates have in manipulating. And so he could write it from both sides. And he also saw how completely easy it was to pull the wool over the volunteers' eyes because they'd come in and they'd get all rose-colored glasses. And so he writes this profound book about teaching Dharma to the incarcerated from both sides. Really, really, really great. Um, You've got to have it from both sides. And learning about prison culture is one of the best things that Father George ever had us do was uh, an extensive reading. And for um, anybody who's interested, I've put together a list of recommended reading. It's on my website, um, which I brought some cards. So I think you guys might want a break. Am I right? I'm recognizing the the time. It's okay. 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 Well, I think we're done. So, done with the PowerPoint. So, yeah. Yes, please. I just had a. I have a question, um, but first I have a recommendation about the prison culture. Um, If anyone listens to podcasts, um, Ear Hustle Mm -hmm. is produced by an inmate and a free person, and it's very interesting and very funny. Mm -hmm. It's called Ear Hustle, out of San Quentin, and and, and the inmates out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Ear Hustle. Yeah. Yeah, Hustle. Ear, and then Hustle. It's prison slang for eavesdropping. It's a lot of people slang for eavesdropping. <laughs> yeah. And hustle is a packed word, too. Yes, but very much so. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Question? Um, I'm assuming you've met a lot of people who, well, there's just a lot of people in prison who are accused and innocent. Mm-hmm. And what would you have to say about them and service to them? Whew. It's tragic. It's tragic, yeah. It's, um, you guys might have met Glenn Hill. He came down here a couple times. Uh, he's a former inmate. 42 years for a crime he didn't commit. Not this particular Okay. Could be so, yeah. And when he finally got found suitable... The other guys asked him, well, you're going to sue them, aren't you? 
they've kept you here for 42 years. And he said, no, they already gave me what I want. Um, But it's tragic and mass incarceration, checking the box, letting, you know, having the police check a box that a crime is solved. And there's a lot of innocent people in prison. I just did a victim offender dialogue last year with one who uh, ultimately was innocent. And he had to keep his innocence quiet for 22 years. So when you meet someone who declares their innocence, are you in a position where you can agree, disagree, not? Not disagree, but not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. No, you know, as a be manipulated there either. Right, and as a chaplain, it's not I don't really, really care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me why they're there. It doesn't matter to me. Um, surely, if they're innocent, I hope that that's found to be true and that they can be released. But um, I don't. I, I don't get involved with their legal stuff either. It's as a chaplain, I'm there for their hearts. And I want to say, too, that when I very first came in, I recognized the need to show up in that same way for the corrections officers who are often equally hurting and hurt and that they need the open heart as much as the inmates do. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we just had somebody come in and talk about spiritual assessment. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions he asked was sort of what are the assessment tools that, or what are the things we're kind of already assessing? Mm-hmm. And I find, I also do um, RJA work and and social emotional learning with elementary schoolers. So oh, wow. my, as well as going to Star King and Chi. So, ah, <laughs> I know. Whoa. Is like <laughs> uh, so... I noticed when he asked that question that one of my go-tos is like power structures and um, systems of oppression. And so already when in my work in schools, especially with the hurt people hurt other people sort of lens, it's like I don't want to like let people off the hook, but it's sort of like I um, I tend toward this sort of like systems lens. And so mm. I guess I'm just wondering as a chaplain, especially working within this oppressive system, and this kind of came up earlier in a situation of like, how do you read mm-hmm. interactions? Like, um, yeah, how do you balance that? And I think it's similar to maybe like, how do you hold your your question earlier? How do you hold like, yeah, this sort of justice mm-hmm. lens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in your role? It's hard, and it hasn't gotten any easier. If anything, it's gotten more difficult. And prisons have been going through a, a new. Um, uh, 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 they call it a yard integration where different populations are being brought into the uh, mainline population and um, it's brought out the even darker underbelly of the corrections world of of the prison system and um, honestly it's it's becoming much more of a challenge for me to not say things. And I, what I try and do is, once again, feet on the ground, breathe from my lower belly, 
be fully aware of the projections and transference that I'm getting from the inmates so that if I start to collude with them or agree with them about how completely vicious this whole place is, that's going to mean a lot more to them than just me saying it to you. And and yet it's true. And so, um, to be honest, I find it to be one of the most challenging um, pieces of this work right now. And is there's a difference between how I relate to this on death row and with the mainline population. On death row, I realized right away that there was a place I had to stop myself from feeling in order to be there and bring good energy. And that is really hard for me because I'm not a person who wants to stop myself anywhere. But I also recognize, like, a year ago I walked in after surgery, after being gone because I had back surgery. I walked into death row, and I heard throughout the row, 740 guys, Susan, Susan's back. And this is death row. And, you know, I just about broke down and wept. And so there's these moments where that all disappears. And there's other moments where I just hate the place. I hear things, especially with these new COs who come in, fresh out of the academy, they're ready to, you know, punch some inmates. And, I mean, it's horrible. I can't really answer that in any other way than this is a huge challenge and that I know I'm bringing some light and I know that I'm doing good work and I know that my path has led to this place and that um, the inmates that are getting out are proof that the wall, the green wall, has got it wrong because they're getting out and they're hitting the ground running and they're doing fantastic work in our communities. And so it's just a matter of time before, I think, that othering begins to lessen and we really see that we have to learn these tools too. (laughs) But that is really a hard, 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 hard place. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I just want to point in the next... I think in one of the next readings for the coming months in Arts of Contemplative Care, it's, I think, four or five chapters on prison. And when I read it, I tell you, it just resonated with me. And there's one quote uh, that I've used in my paper. Uh, All kinds of things go wrong. And I have a problem is I'm a fighter. And I have to keep bowing Mm -hmm. to the guards. Mm -hmm. I have to bow and I have to pull back. I I have to kowtow. I know how wrong they are and they're doing this mean thing. But I have to remind myself they're they're in charge. They're in control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have my own stories Mm-hmm. Of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and once but again, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. You know, and and we sit in a group on Wednesday with the group facilitator, the group trainees, and there's a CO who's always outside, and we've given him a little bit of a not really nice name of lunch money because he's seems to be like somebody stole his lunch money a lot when he was a little kid, and he takes it out on the inmates, and um, we actually really hold him in a kind and gentle way, recognizing his hurt and recognizing that he's acting this way because of some thing that he has, some part of his identity that he hasn't been able to face or drop. So.
So it does become a great um, place for practicing your own compassion and tolerance as well. I had one incident, and as soon as it happened, all of us, we started sending meta to the guard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. The prison is a great place to keep your practice constant and to really recognize when you're beginning to other, it's easy to other the guards. So when I find myself starting to do that, I just once again have to breathe and recognize their own, their own hurt. I mean, uh, corrections officers have one of the highest rates of suicide, alcoholism, domestic violence. Tough job. Can you maybe give an example of how, um, so in uh, the group that I volunteer with, we don't necessarily have like an established meta practice or loving kindness practice, and it doesn't often get addressed um, to not other the guards. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens a lot, or it happens fairly often, um, where there will be this attitude of, man, the cops did this, or the cops took my phone, or the cops taught me, caught me with whatever. It's always just like, they're the cops. Mm. Um, how would you approach? Um, a conversation about not othering the correctional officers when there's already that kind of mm-hmm. uh, dynamic around them. Yeah. Well, those examples you gave would... Uh, there's got to be some accountability. I mean, you said you work in the... Do you work in the jail? It's a... Yeah, dual vocational institute. It's a oh, prison. okay. So they shouldn't have phones. <laughs> right. I agree. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, there's accountability. We wouldn't, if somebody in one of our groups said, eh, the, the, the cops, they, t- the, they took my phone, you know, people would be like, dude, what are you doing in this group, you know? <laughs> or it was like, <laughs> I, I can't get visitation because the cops caught me with Yeah. Well, there again, look at, so, so my spiritual assessment model, which I feel is really nice and simple, is connection, disconnection, interconnection. So just in that little phrase, the cops took my phone or the cops took my visit. So there's, so there's a place of engagement in that statement where there was a connection that was wanting to be made. There was a visit. It began, became, became disconnected when the cop took it. There's a power dynamic there, right? And so I would just begin to talk about that, just if there was a, a room for that conversation, and also to recognize that getting us to other the cops is a great place to begin a, a long plan of manipulation. Mm-hmm. So we have to be really careful how we step into that because um, inmates have, uh, in prisons especially, they have a lot of time. And you might not be manipulated in an obvious way, but there are many little small ways that after two years you look back and you see that you've been played all along. And maybe the one of the very first um, uh, cards was trying to get you to other the cops. So you have to be really careful. But always look for the connection. Go in there. Expand on that. Um. Related to that, when we, we went to observe the GRIP program at Soledad, mm-hmm. and it was very powerful, um, 
Uh, in this, I was impressed by the cro- program. Um, in the small group, um, it was a whole day there, so uh, in the small group section, men had this task to read letters they'd written, unfinished business, mm-hmm. yeah. And they were, whether they were reading the letter or whether they were just talking, they were, some of them were two women in their lives, whether it was a significant other or mother or um, family member. And they were um, you know, pretty openly expressing their views and opinions around the actions of the women. It was, re- it was really challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was also the only woman in that group of mm. 10, 12 men. Uh, there are two women facilitators in the group of 30 men. Um, uh, two women, two, two men. Uh, uh, so, you know, I am no in no authority role there, so it was obvious I just need to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> but I was really, you know, struck by that challenge in that work for either a man or a woman mm-hmm. facilitator. Um, and I'm just curious um, about that, you know, uh, Obviously, people need to, the inmates need to state their situation. They're just working through it. Um, but I was just curious um, how that is for you mm-hmm. to be a woman there with mm-hmm. a lot of men and them expressing their views and opinions. And, um, and just, yeah, if there's ever, that, how that works, mm-hmm. how that works for you, what your experience is around that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I had a good training in how to be a woman with a lot of men in the monasteries. And these are Tibetan Buddhist monasteries, so the men are, the monks are presumed to be celibate. And I um, am pretty good at, I think, uh, aligning myself with what I perceive to be the divine qualities of the feminine that we all have and showing up as a person and not being a sexual person, not being particularly in my um, emitting a lot of estrogen. I dress pretty, you know, I cover up. I, uh, I treat everybody equally. And I'm at an age where at least I say this and then I get argued with by the inmates, but I feel like I'm in an age where I don't, um, the charge is dissipated. And there is a profound depth of loneliness for female connection among, a men's pri- among men in a men's prison. Profound. To the point where one inmate enlightened me, those of you who are at the BP3 retreat remember I said this, where he said, Susan, you have to realize, one, how much we need you here. We need your presence here. Two, how lonely these guys are. You talk to a guy one time, that's one thing. You talk to him twice, he's going to think you're his girl. Then he sees you walking down through the yard with another inmate, there's going to be a beef and you won't even know it. You're a player in somebody else's script and you don't have any idea. So boundaries is really important. Showing up and whatever female deity you resonate with, I would always sit there in the Catholic chapel and my mom loved Mary. And I'd sit in front of Mary and I would just really ask Mary to allow me to be a healing presence 
without being um, being um, you know a, a woman presence. You know what I mean? Or Tara, imagine Tara over death row, and um, and in terms of sitting in with the groups, there again, it's really 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 useful to utilize your spiritual practice that allows us to uh, not hold, to let go, to be present for, to be a vessel of. In the stories that we hear, the letters that we hear, the emotion that gets um, let out is so raw and so rough and uh, so violent sometimes that this protection that I do in the morning comes in very useful because I don't want to take home the images that are being spoken. So, once again, my default is to recognize suffering. And I realized from the very first time I sat in a grip group when somebody disclosed a very gruesome stabbing, I had some inner wisdom that said, feet on the ground, breathe, this is suffering, this is suffering, this is suffering. And not to keep it away from me, but to be able to embrace it as suffering versus all the details and to be able to recognize that there is healing in this moment, something's being discharged, and that we have the power through love, through presence, to transform that, to help transform that, and to stay grounded. That's the most important thing. Is that helpful? I can ask one more question. Sure. I'm curious about the restorative justice program. Mm-hmm. Is that like how do, is that available in the majority of communities? How does that get set up? How do people know about it? Yeah. Um, well, do a little bit of searching. Wherever, what community are you in? Where do you live? Uh, San Francisco. Yeah, it's most definitely uh, alive and well in San Francisco, Oakland, um, Mendocino. Um, if you look up restorative justice in Marin County or in Alameda County or whatever county you're in, you'll, you'll be surprised. Um, there's also a lot of the, uh, restorative practices being done, uh, Dominic Barter's restorative circles, um, communities are looking towards a more, unifying way of resolving conflict within the communities and so different restorative practices are being brought in through uh, many different levels in government. Marin County I think had the first restorative justice youth court then extended over into the Oakland area. There's a organization called Our Joy in Oakland restorative justice of Oaklanders for Oakland youth or something they do a huge amount of work so if for anybody in here who wants to begin something in your community that's based in restorative justice, there's a lot of people around here that could help you do that. There's a big forum on the 27th in Marin County on restorative justice, which I can send to Gil and Jennifer if anybody's interested. Yeah, I have a question um, I think of traditionally that, uh, cha- cha- uh, oh, if I say it this way, <clears throat> so you're a chaplain at San Quentin, but you're not paid by the state. Right. 
And there are a group of chaplains like uh, George Williams and others who are paid chaplains mm-hmm. at, in the prison. And I imagine that uh, your way in is a lot to do with programs, and you do go into San Quentin and to death row, but a lot of traditional chaplains, they don't do programs necessarily. Right. And so what is, what is traditional kind of non-program mm. chaplaincy in the prison look like? Oh, great question. They're all jealous of me. <laughs> because? Because I don't have to sit behind a computer dealing with all their red tape. I get to actually work with the guys. I, um, so because Father George was my, my inroad to the prison, um, it, 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 uh, most of the chaplains do programs there at San Quentin. They do programs that are based in their faith tradition. Um, they do. They don't do so much like grip programs, but they do do other programs at San Quentin anyway. But the day in the life of a staff chaplain in the the CDCR, they hire. They formally recognize Catholic, Protestant, Native American, Muslim, and Jewish. And there's some word. There's always been some word ever since I even heard your name, Gil, because I know you've been pressing this. There's been some word that the uh, state. Um, prison system is going to begin to hire either interfaith or Buddhist chaplains. I know the feds already have, so we're, I'm still hoping. But the day in the life of a prison chaplain is not that much fun. There's so much, ru- so many rules and so many regulations, and um, they have to keep up on things like meal requests. Like the Jewish, um, the rabbi is who I'm under. I'm up under the rabbi. And we're good friends as well. I'm friends with all the chaplains. And he is constantly behind his computer uh, dealing with uh, 602, which is the beginning of an inmate lawsuit because somebody didn't get a kosher meal or um, maybe the, uh, going to somebody's cell that they completely don't know and delivering a death notice, which is really sad. Um, visiting people in the hospital. It, Chaplaincy in the prisons is really needs a revamp. Almost none of them have any formal training. I've I've heard and seen so many things that the chaplains do or don't do that is pretty unconscionable, and pretty much none of them have good self care practices. So there's a really high rate of burnout, and the way that shows up in our prison anyway is uh, one chaplain never shows up. There's some rule somebody got. Sh- got pushed through a rule that chaplains don't need to punch in or punch out, even though they get a full salary. They don't need to show up. And then the other, so one chaplain doesn't show up. The other chaplain only shows up sometimes. Um, The other chaplain only shows up because he got busted for not showing up and doing something having to do with illicit something with the inmates. The other chaplain uh, quit and nobody's replaced him. And so that's kind of what prison chaplaincy looks like at San Quentin. It's very vacant, you know. Um, uh, yeah, it's sad. It's really sad. Yep. Well, not really. And my way in is very unique because I was with Father George in his prison ministry class. He allowed me to do the field work and he built up the trust in me to allow me to do CPE under him. Um, there are volunteer ministers that come in. 
not so much chaplains, but there are volunteer ministers that come in, and they will do the legwork for those missing chaplains. Um, but they cannot, uh, we're very limited too. Like, for example, um, I have all my paperwork on file with the administration. I have my, my MDiv, I have my ordination, I have an endorsement from the monastery as a Buddhist chaplain. Um, I'm their, their sort of off-record Buddhist chaplain. But even though I used to be able to go to death row on my own and back again, um, for the first few years I had to go with Father George and he had to stand there the whole time, which meant that he got even more behind on all the red tape computer stuff. And then I was going in with the rabbi. And then I was able to go in by myself for two or three years. And then the, another group of the ministers began to overstep over, um, their boundaries. And so all of the uh, volunteer, so-called volunteer ministers and chaplains had to go back to being escorted. And so now I go in with rabbi. He just walks me to the big condemned metal door, opens it up, and I'm free to go and free to leave. So we, uh, if I was going to do a one-on-one, I have a little bit more clout there or, or currency there because I've been going into death row now for six years. So I'm trusted but um, to go up to the hospital, for example, and see men up in the hospital, I would need to be escorted by a staff chaplain, even though I have a green card, which is almost what they have. It's very different. The good part is I get to be with the men more. I get to do uh, the, this great transformational work, and I don't have to work with all the computer red tape and all the 602s. But I work closely with all the chaplains. I really like them all too. I think that's wonderful. I mean, that you came here and you've done things. Maybe it's time to stop. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's fantastic to get this presentation. And I think our connection to San Quentin over these years and, and to you and to Jacques has been one of the great blessings for our program. And uh, so a group of us that were supposed to go into San Quentin in December and uh, we'll see you in March. Great. I forgot, uh, you wanted me to say a little bit about the CPE program? Yes. Okay, so just very quickly, um, I work with an organization called the Center for Spiritual Care and Pastoral Formation, and we offer community-based CPE. And this is a program that allows people to pretty much choose their own placements as long as they their placement um, fulfills the requirements of our CPE program, meaning um, enough hours, supervision, and um, material for case conferences and things like that. And we have actually tried to implement this program at San Quentin. We had one person who was uh, really ready to go forward, and I arranged all of her hours and everything only to find out she didn't have transportation and she couldn't get there in time. But um, the things that I just said about the obstacles to a volunteer make it uh, really challenging to do a CPE placement in San Quentin without it being involved with groups. It pretty much has to be involved with groups because a volunteer can't just go do one-on-ones. But it is possible, and it's also possible we have a number of people who are working in assisted living facilities or 
uh, meditation centers or hospices, and they do CPE with us as well. So I, um, and our units are, um, my supervisor always says, because of the changing face of chaplaincy these days, especially with these big organizations like um, Spiritual Care Association and um, beginning to kind of become an umbrella for a healthcare chaplaincy, it's always good to ask wherever you are, wherever you want to get certified, if, if the sort of certifying body accepts units from CSCPF. Usually they accept two units from CSCPF, and um, I'm meaning more like healthcare chaplaincy these days. Then they want a few ACPE or uh, units as well. But um, I'm board certified, and I did my four units at, at San Quentin, and now I've been, I think, uh, three years, maybe four, as a supervisor in training for CPE, along with a couple others. So I, I did leave, bring some flyers. So thank you. I hope it was not a brain, brain cram for everybody and that you can let some of it dissipate. And I would be very available for any questions uh, that might come up afterwards. Yeah. So we'll take 15 minutes for a break. We'll start again at 3.20 in here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.